Lord Jesus, we know that you're seated on heavenly throne. And from that throne, you're seated as a kingly teacher. You empower people like us by teaching us, telling us how the world came to be, who we are, how to be made right with God. And so, Lord, I pray as we turn our attention to your teaching, to your word, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you open it up to us so that it lets us in. We need to get into the Bible, into your word, to see all the things as you see them, to understand them the way that you do, to be empowered, to be corrected, to be rebuked, to be taught. I pray in some small way in our lives and in our church that today your majesty and greatness is expressed even more fully through our congregation and in my life. Pray this in your name, in the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. Amen. You can go ahead and be seated. Thanks. <laughs> okay, in 19, 1964, on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, a little eight-year-old boy uh, told his parents what he wanted for Christmas. He wanted an easy-bake oven. You guys remember the easy-bake oven? Remember that thing? Now, his dad looked at that situation and thought to himself, you know, I got, a, I got a little boy. What does he want an easy-bake oven for? So he thought better of it, um, and uh, he, he wanted to get him a G.I. Joe. So that Christmas, this little eight-year-old boy got both things for Christmas, an easy-bake oven and a G.I. Joe. And I tell you, you're going to be very glad to find out that uh, what he used more often than the G.I. Joe was the easy-bake oven. That kid would go on to train in some of the greatest kitchens in New York City, and he'd go on to become a famous chef. His name is Bobby Flay. Anybody heard heard of Bobby Flay, right? He's got this show, and uh, the one that I most often, whenever we're flicking through the channels, my wife and I, and I find the show, I always find it amazing. It's the show where he invites other people who are really, really good at cooking into his kitchen, and he basically invites them to challenge him. They're going to make whatever they're going to make. He's going to make a version of it. They're going to put it up for, to, uh, to get judged, uh, and then somebody's going to walk out a winner. And I'm always astounded by this. Like, he'll invite somebody who is a chocolatier, like somebody who went to the, all the greatest French schools where the philosophers of chocolate sit on their thrones teaching the great ones about what to do with that beautiful thing called chocolate. And they'll have, I mean, they'll have spent their whole life dedicated this, their, their whole career to this one field to be as good as you can be in chocolate. And then Bobby Flay will say, let's make a little dessert. You make one, I'll make one and let's see how it goes. And the whole time that he's cooking, you're asking yourself the question, there's just no way that he can do this. And he's throwing a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Finally, they put both things up there. And, uh, and the, you know, the, the judges will taste both of them. And sort of time, not every time, but time and time again, no matter what the genre of cooking is, Bobby Flay proves himself to be superior. He walks around the kitchen with a certain kind of a majesty that no matter what he makes and no matter what field it's in, his cooking is just always going to be better than yours. Now, there's another kind of cooking show where we meet people who think they're like that. This show is called Gordon Ramsay's Kitchen Nightmares. And it, it's always amazing to me. Somebody, their business will be going into the tank. They'll write Gordon Ramsay, Gordon, please come help me. I'm running my business into the tank. Gordon shows up and sits down and says, you know, bring out to me all the genres of your cooking. And one dish after another, he tastes, you know, he tastes it. And then he, you know, he delivers his judging verdict. This food is awful. Let me help you. And it's a, it's, it's a surprising thing. What do many, many of the people who wrote letters and said, Gordon, please come help me. My restaurant's a mess. They're willing to have him help them with their books, 
their interior design. But there's oftentimes one thing that these kitchen nightmares share in common, which is the delusion that their cooking is as brilliant as Gordon Ramsay's. They walk around thinking they're a Bobby Flay, but without any of his majesty. You know what I'm saying? Today I want to talk to you about Jesus Christ. And I want to talk to you about his majesty. Many, many people... um, Many people will proclaim that they're Christian people, that they believe that Jesus is wonderful, he's terrific, he's outstanding, he's a great king. They'll subscribe to his, his majesty. Yes, Jesus is a king on a throne. But when it functionally actually comes down to the, the nitty-gritty of life, how should you raise kids? How do you do marriage? What's education? What does it mean to be a man? Functionally, they walk around like they're Gordon Ram- or like they're on Gordon Ramsay's kitchen nightmare. Like I know exactly what I'm doing. I know better than Jesus Christ what to do in this situation. And what I want to do today is open up God's Word, and we're going to look at a segment of Scripture where I hope not not to point my finger and say, "Naughty you, make Jesus Christ the King of your life." Everybody knows that never works. No one ever follows Jesus Christ because they ought to. You better get in line. But what I hope that we do over the next 30 minutes when we open up God's word is that what dawns on you in a fresh new way is the actual, functional, beautiful majesty of Jesus Christ so that we all see from our hearts. It's, it's right. It's right and fitting that he's on the throne. It's right and fitting that we do what he tells us to do. That's right. It's right and fitting that we worship him and love him and glorify him. And this is especially important right now because we're going into the Easter season. And the Easter season is a time when churches over and over again reflect on the core message of, of the entire Bible. The message that Jesus is king. Always has been. Always will be. It's an irresistible fact. And what it means to be a Christian is for that fact, the fact of Jesus' great kingship, to dawn brighter and brighter and brighter and brighter every year that we come back around to Easter for his glory to shine more and more and more. And I don't care if you're 13 in here and his, his kingship is just dawning in your life. And I don't care if you're 113 in here. Well, I do. That'd be pretty amazing. If you're 113, I want to meet you after the service. <laughs> Even if you're 113, his kingship has not dawned enough. Every single one of us can walk out today with a, with a sense of duty and a sense of calling and a sense of a desire. I want Jesus to be on the rise in my life. So I'm going to ask that you take your copy of God's Word, turn it over to the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to be in uh, chapter 3. Um, yeah, and I'm going to ask that you stand to your feet as we... Um, We're talking about Jesus as a great king, and when the king speaks, his people rise. And they rise not only out of a sense of duty, but also out of a sense of the beauty of these words. We love to hear our king speak to us. We love when his words come over us. Matthew chapter 3. I'm going to start at verse 7, and we're going to go through verse 17. But when he, this is John the Baptist, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham, even now. 
the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who's coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor, gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. They never would put John the Baptist on the church greeter team. That would never happen. It was just... Verse 13. I just, as I read these words, I just want you to picture this in your mind. This happened. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Jesus answered him, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went out from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Let's pray. God, our Father, please give us power that we don't have to grab a hold of what you're teaching us right here in these words. Open up our minds to think the highest thoughts that any mind could ever think. No brain could ever do anything more glorious than think on your son, Jesus Christ. And inflame our hearts. No object is more beautiful and worthy to be loved and treasured and savored than your son. Please glorify yourself by giving us the power to do that right now. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. And you can be seated. So if you've been with us, you know that we've been in the book of Acts uh, in a series. And we definitely, we're going to get back for the final episodes of that once we get beyond the Easter season. But there's two times a year that the church gets a special, special privilege to really look in great detail at just what we have in Christ. Christmas is one of those seasons, you know, so this last Christmas, you know, we, we took the whole season of Christmas to look at the birth of this great King, Jesus. And the Easter season is another one of these times where every Christian would benefit from taking a fresh and deeper look at what happened in the life and ministry and death, resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. Like I mentioned in the introduction, none of us know him well enough. None of us have mastered him. None of us have gotten our arms around him so that we can come to Easter and say, ah, I've covered that. I already know everything I need to know about Easter. No, no, we don't. We need to come to Easter in a deeper way. So the name of this uh, sermon series that we're going to utilize between now and uh, through Easter and in the Ascension is Jesus on the Rise. And what I don't want to do, I don't want to get us messed up about that and think that what I mean by that is Jesus is getting more and more glorious because the truth is, no, he's not. Jesus has always been and always will be eternally the, the highest. But what I mean by this is that not that Jesus himself would be on the rise, but that Jesus would be on the rise in us as individual people, 
in your, uh, in your mini church, in your small group, my prayer is that in this month, Jesus, the son of Jesus will rise higher in the sky in your, in your group, in your marriage and in your family, at your workplace, here in our church, that God would bless us by lifting up Jesus, making him more glorious and by him shining through our church more and more. That's my prayer. And so to, to do this, we're going to walk through uh, some episodes of Jesus' life, specific critical turning points in Jesus' rise to authority, greatness, and power. And we're going to use the gospel of Matthew to do this. Now, you likely know that there's four different people, four different men that the Holy Spirit empowered and carried along to record exactly the words that he wanted written about Jesus. Jesus is so great that one account of his life was not good enough. We needed four of them. Uh, we need Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to write about him. Um, now we know we've been studying the book of Luke and the book of Acts over this last year. So we all know that Luke became a Christian decades after Jesus. So that means when Luke records the baptism of Jesus Christ, he wasn't there as a firsthand witness. He was a research historian. So he talked to the people that were there. One of the people that he certainly talked to was Mary. Don't you think that Mary was there on the day of Jesus' baptism? Don't you think she saw it? So Luke wrote about it as a research historian. Uh, and the Gospel of Mark, John Mark also was not one of the early disciples. John Mark was a ministry companion to uh, the Apostle Peter. It's pretty likely that Mark's account is uh, Mark writing it down, but Peter uh, retelling the accounts of it. There are two of the original apostles, and we have their direct firsthand account of exactly what happened. We have John. But John gives us a firsthand account that is from the heavens. He doesn't start off with who Jesus' father was. He doesn't start off with the, with the birthplace or the shepherds. He starts out with a, I mean, he starts out at 30,000 feet. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. I mean, John is at another level. All the, all the uh, theological uh, teachers all recognize that John's gospel is in a world of its own. And so they call Matthew, Mark, and Luke the synoptic gospels, the gospels that walk us right through with Jesus' life. Matthew was one of the first, was one of the apostles. His name was Levi. He was a tax collector, came to Jesus Christ, had his whole life turned upside down, and he wrote an account of his life. And he writes with a specific purpose in mind, the same purpose that we have for this sermon series. He writes to make it undeniably clear and true that Jesus Christ is here to reign. Jesus Christ is royal, majestic, worthy of worship and that his kingship is on the rise and it's unstoppable and one of the first events that he writes about uh, is, is this event of Jesus being baptized now John the Baptist and Jesus ministry go hand in hand and they go hand in hand because it's been like that from the very beginning of their lives Remember, uh, Jesus and John the Baptist are cousins. Jesus' mother, Mary, and John the Baptist's mother, Elizabeth, both got impregnated by something supernatural. John the Baptist was the only person who was filled with the Holy Spirit in utero. Can you imagine what that was like for him to be filled with the Spirit in the womb? And so it's not surprising that through his life, when he comes out, there's fire. His, his clothes are rough and tumble. His message is hot, old school, Pentecostal gospel. 
right? I mean, his sermon starts out and he's calling people snakes and telling them who warned you to flee from the fire? You better turn or burn, right? Doesn't everybody love that kind of preaching? Don't a lot of people in our day and age think that that kind of preaching is never appropriate? Well, we don't want to talk about that. We want to talk about the tenderness and kindness and mercy of Jesus. Okay, and I just want to be real clear. Now, that is true. There's, there's a time when Jesus' tender, loving mercy is what should be on the front of our tongues. But listen, didn't Jesus himself warn people that if you did not turn and repent from your sins, that there was one destination that awaited you, and that was the lake of fire? See, this is the incredible thing about Jesus. Every moment, every second of every day, the only thing that he ever did was the perfect thing to do. When did Jesus preach a sermon about hellfire and brimstone? When did he do that? When it was the perfect thing to do. And when did he preach a sermon about the tender-hearted, loving, warm mercies of God? When did he do that? When it was the perfect thing to do. It's an astounding thing that for 33 years of his life, from the moment that he was an infant in swaddling clothes, until on the cross, he's gasping for air, holding himself up there. The nails were not strong enough to hold the Son of God on that cross. Only one thing was strong enough to hold the Son of God on that cross, and that was Jesus himself, his self-control. What did Jesus do every second of every moment of every day? The perfect right thing to do. So John the Baptist and Jesus' life is intertwined. They both, they knew each other in the womb. John the Baptist and Jesus, since they were cousins, it's almost impossible to imagine that they didn't know each other and spend time together as young people. And John the Baptist knew by the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus was something else. At, at Jesus' baptism, John pointed at him, look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John the Baptist knew things about Jesus Christ that other people did not know. He knew that there was something miraculous and special about Jesus. But I want you to think about this. Even Jesus' cousin, who was filled with the Holy Spirit from birth, who looked at him when no one else knew and said, that's the Lamb of God. Even John the Baptist struggled to have Jesus ascend the true throne over his life. And right here we see that John the Baptist is struggling to understand why Jesus, why are you coming to me? In, uh, in Luke's account of this, or sorry, in John's account of this, John the Baptist shares his own testimony about what happened this day. John the Baptist, in this baptism, and we're going to see some supernatural things are going to happen. The heavens are going to be open. The Spirit is going to come down. And the closest way the gospel writers can try to describe to you what it looked like, said the Holy Spirit came down like a dove. Was, there was no dove that day. But it was the Holy Spirit descending and how, do you, how are you going to describe the invisible, all-powerful Spirit of God coming from the, out of the heavens down onto Jesus? Well, it was, like a, it was like a dove coming down. And John the Baptist saw that. And then later on in uh, John the Baptist's life and in his ministry, there comes a point where Jesus has taken the baton from John the Baptist. He took over the role of baptizing. He took over the role of uh, preaching the word of God. And that's a good thing that he did that because he is the word of God. And John the Baptist's life took a different turn. John the Baptist got arrested and imprisoned and he was right about to lose his head. And he sent some of his own followers to Jesus with the question, are you the one? 
This is the guy who's in the water with Jesus when the heavens are open and the Holy Spirit comes down. And John the Baptist said, I saw that happen. I saw into heaven. So any of you ever get to a point in your life where King Jesus' sovereign plan for your life puts you in a situation where you're tempted to ask the question, is Jesus still the king now? Anybody ever had a moment like that? Anybody in a moment like that right now? Don't be discouraged. Jesus' own cousin who came up with him, who looked and saw into the heavens and saw the spirit come down, came into a situation in his life where he asked the question, is Jesus king over this? And what is always the answer to the question, is Jesus the king over this? The answer to that is always and forever, yes and amen. There is not one molecule or second in the entire existence that Jesus is not in the rule and reign over. So John the Baptist has a great question. John the Baptist is in the water. Jesus is coming out to be baptized. Now Jesus is not the only one. Scripture tells us that John the Baptist starts his ministry about six months before Jesus does. So John the Baptist is preaching and preparing the way. Everybody get ready. The great king of righteousness is coming. Let's get things cleaned up. Let's get things straightened out. Everybody come down to the water. Let's repent and turn from our sins. We are not being faithful to God. We are not holy. We're not clean enough for the king to come to us. Let's get ready. Let's clean things up. And so Jews are coming out of Jerusalem and they're streaming out and John's baptizing them. Some, many, many people, honest, faithful, devout Jewish people are coming out and saying, I do, I want to get clean. I want to get ready for the Messiah to come. And they do. Some scoundrels come out and John the Baptist uh, gives them some firm words and Jesus comes out among them. And Jesus comes down in the water. And the word that Matthew uses for that, he says, Jesus made his appearance. And this doesn't just mean that Jesus was there. It means that this, this is the moment that Jesus is going to begin to stand out from all the others. Jesus is going to make his appearance the way a great king begins to take on his royal majesty and his royal highness. And so Jesus is in the water with John the Baptist and John the Baptist says, says this, no, Lord, no, you know this isn't right. If two of us are going to be in the water and one of us is going to take charge of the situation and one of us is going to be a pastor and kind of a priest and a spiritual leader to the other one, Jesus, you know that there's no way I could be your pastor and baptize you. Not a chance. Come on. What are you doing? And Jesus' response to him was like, let it be so right now. This is fitting. Now it's not fitting because John the Baptist is more holy or more powerful or more royal than Jesus. That's not why it's fitting. What always makes a situation fitting for Jesus Christ is one underlying principle that he lived his entire life with. Every moment of every day, the only thing he ever did was, what is the Father commanding me to do right now? And that is the thing that's always fitting for me to do. I want you to think about this. Jesus is 30 years old now. Jesus' life is going to last for 33 years. 90% of Jesus' earthly life 90% of it is lived in a way that almost no one thinks there's anything special about him. 
I mean, certainly Mary knew. Mary treasured those things in her heart. She never forgot Jesus. She never forgot who he was. She never forgot that day. All the events of his birth, she never forgot that. But Jesus' brothers, they didn't become Christians until after Jesus was crucified and resurrected. His brothers didn't think that there was much special about him. Jesus went back to his hometown and after preaching and doing miracles all around, he went back to his hometown. And think about how Jesus must have lived his life for 30 years for his whole town to go, I I, I know that kid and there wasn't anything special about him when he was here. Can you think of the kind of restraint it took for Jesus Christ To walk around his hometown and allow himself to be treated like a normal teenager, like a normal 20-year-old. When people thought, oh, there's nothing special about Jesus. And deep down, Jesus knew, I made you. I know what you're thinking right now. I could, oh, oh man, all the things, can you think of all the things that Jesus could have done for all those 30 years? And he allowed himself to be treated like just a normal person. Why? Because that's what his heavenly father commanded that he would do. He was not going to take on and assume special status for himself until his heavenly father's plan had determined there is a moment where everyone will begin to know that you are the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And for 30 years, that moment hadn't come and Jesus had held himself back. And now he's in the water and he's saying to John the Baptist, this is the right thing to do. It's the right thing to do because it's my job here to fulfill righteousness. And what that means is that Jesus Christ, it was his responsibility, it was his ministry to obey God the Father perfectly. For him to achieve a perfect righteous record that for his entire life, not one sin could be counted against him. Think about that. Not one moment, not one second of one day did he ever not love the Lord with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Not once. So Jesus goes down in this water with John the Baptist because John the Baptist is a prophet. So that John the Baptist is speaking the word of God. And when John the Baptist says, come down to the river and be baptized... Who must obey that command? Every good faithful Jew had to listen to the words of the prophet John the Baptist and obey him. Jesus goes down in the water and says, this is fitting to do because you're the prophet. You're the person who God's anointed for ministry. I have not been commissioned for ministry yet. So it's my responsibility to be baptized by you because your ministry is active and God the Father is commanding. So I have to obey that command. And he goes down under the water, but when he comes back up out of the water, the entire tide of human history has changed. He comes up out of the water, and Matthew tells us immediately, the heavens are opened. Another one of the gospel writers tells us that the heavens were ripped open. What does that sound like for the heavens to be ripped open? Jesus comes up out of the water and he's enveloped by two things. He's enveloped by the words from God the Father. This is my beloved son. This is my precious son. This is my treasured son. This is my only begotten son. He makes me so happy. I delight in him. And 
the heavens are ripped open and the person of the Holy Spirit descends straight from heaven, straight out onto Jesus. And now Jesus is enveloped by the Holy Spirit. And right here, what you and I are getting and Matthew's holding out for us, a picture of such beauty and such glory that it should absolutely, it, it should, our minds can't think about anything else more glorious than this. And our hearts should be so stirred by what we're seeing right here. What we're seeing is that we're getting a window into who God is. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. This is why we're here. And what Matthew is holding out for us right here is to say, look at the God that we have that we're made in his image of. We have a picture of what's been going on from before the foundation of the world. We see God the way that he is. We see the heavenly father looking down at his son, glorying in him. He's a treasure. Look at him. I delight in him. Look at him. And we see a son so glorifying his heavenly father that he'll do anything. Whatever you tell me to do, I glory in you. My highest is is to obey you. Whatever you tell me to do, I will do it and I'll do it perfectly. I love to do what you tell me to do. And the father saying, I love the way that you do what I tell you. I love you. And Jesus saying, I love you. And the Holy Spirit on fire back and forth between the two, giving glory to the son and glory to the father. This relationship between the father, the son, and the Holy Spirit, how long have they been glorified? glorying in each other? How long have they been loving each other? How long have they been so incredibly happy doing that? How long? That goes back in the rearview mirror of all history forever. That's God. How long is that going to last? How long is the father going to look at the son and say, you, I love you. How long is that going to go on? Forever? How long is Jesus' son going to look at the heavenly father and say, I love to do what you tell me to do. I love it. I love you. How long? How long is the Holy Spirit going to be just on fire with that? Looking at the son and saying, you're beautiful. Looking at the father saying, you're beautiful. I love you. How long? This is what's so unique about Christianity. God's not wringing his hands, hoping that, oh, just I hope that people come to Christ. I hope that people accept and come into salvation. If they don't, I'm going to be so sad. That is not the picture of Christianity. Before you and I were created or anything that was formed, God was completely and totally immersed in happiness and love and glory and joy. And on and on forever, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit will be singing and dancing and delighting and loving each other. God does not come into our lives because he needs us to worship him. Jesus is not saying, I demand you to glorify me because I need glory and I'm not glorified enough. That's not what happens. Jesus invites us into glorying in him, into seeing a heavenly father as glorious, into seeing his glory and beauty, into being filled with the Holy Spirit because it's the best thing in the world for us to be drawn in and brought into that. Okay, now let's, 
let's push this into some of the corners and apply it into our own lives for a minute before we get ready to wrap up. Let me ask you a question. As we head into this Easter season, if the Heavenly Father looks down at Jesus Christ, the Son, and says, you're astoundingly glorious. I love you. I can't take my eyes off you. I delight in you. You are so wonderful. Let me ask you the question. How are you doing with that? If if the divine father of the Trinity looks down on Jesus and is overwhelmed with love for him, where, where are we? Does Jesus need to be on the rise in our lives and in our minds and in our hearts, does he? And if the Holy Spirit envelops and wraps himself around the sun with delight and love and says, I love you, I glorify you, where's that at for you? Are you stirred and astounded by the beauty and the majesty of Jesus Christ? Are you? The thing that Matthew's going to do in the gospel, and as we move on from here, what Matthew's going to do is show us in situation after situation, as soon as Jesus steps into a scenario, he's the king. He steps into a situation where the climate is stirring up and causing a problem. And he doesn't get worried or concerned. What does he do? He commands it. That's enough. Cumulonimbus clouds, I've said stop it. Behave yourselves. And what do they do? What do the clouds do? What do clouds do when Jesus tells them to stop it? What do they do? Yes, your royal highness. He walks into a situation where a person is possessed by so many demons that the name is legion. A legion is a Roman occupying force designed to hunker down, set up shop, take possession, and keep possession no matter what. Jesus says, what's your name? Legion. And he said, that's enough. Get out. What do they do? Yes, your royal highness. Jesus, in order to travel from one side of a body of water to another side of a body of water, he doesn't want to go around. He wants to go straight across because Jesus is the king of math and he knows the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. And he's going to walk across it. There's only one problem. Water doesn't normally support us walking upon it. True or false? True. Uh, Except Jesus is the king of water. So Jesus commands the hydrogen molecules to behave with a property that they don't normally have. Maybe he tells those protons and neutrons and electrons to speed up so that they could become a solid because his feet are going to walk across it. And he looks at the water and he says, hold me up. What does the water do? Yes, your majesty. And he walks across. There's not one situation in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus Christ isn't in full command. He's a king. Let me ask you a question. In your life, is Jesus that kind of a king? Is he the king of your money? Or or do you feel like, Lord, I I have some better ideas about how to handle money than you do. You know what? One day you'll catch up to speed where kind of I'm at with money, but I'm going to do my thing with money and I, you know, eventually you might figure it out. As I'm saying that, can't you see how ridiculous that is? Doesn't that sound ridiculous? And yet, are we doing that? Who's the king of marriage? Who's the king of child raising? 
Who's the king of high finance? Who's the king of beauty and art? Who's the king of law? Who's the king of medicine? Who's the king of construction? Right, do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus showed up on your work site and you found out that he was the licensed plumber and he was gonna take care of the job? Do you think that you would do a better job plumbing than Jesus would? Answer to that question is, you're outside of your mind if you think that. Everybody in here, I don't care what your job is, if Jesus put on your tool belt for a day, he would kill you at that job. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus is the royal highness over everything? And if so, does he have majesty in your life? Is Jesus the king of leadership? King of masculinity? King of sacrifice? Is Jesus the king of death? Remember, everything that Jesus stepped into, the moment he stepped into it, he mastered it. This is why Jesus came back and said, I have the keys of hell and death. I own both of them. The devil is not the warden of hell. The devil is an inmate in hell. Who has the keys of hell and death in his hands? Christians, listen to me. The day of our death and departure from this planet, the day of that death is ordained by God. There is a fixed day when every single one of us will enter into death. Who holds the keys of your death? Who will grab your hand and walk you through that doorway of death? Who is that? Jesus the King. If you're a Christian, you and I are, we are royal citizens of the great kingdom. And let me ask the question, have you learned how to bow to the King? Is it low enough and is it long enough? Ladies, have you learned how to curtsy to the king? And does your knee bend deep enough and do you hold that long enough? And there is one place where the answer to that ought to be better and more true than it is everywhere else. And that is right here in his church among his people. Where should Jesus shine the brightest as the king? One thing I'm hoping for this Easter season, I'm hoping that you'll join me. The place that Jesus needs to be the most on the rise is right here in my own life. Maybe for you, the person sitting in your chair. Jesus is the royal king. May we live that way. I'm going to ask that you stand to your feet. And I'm going to, the worship team is going to come out. What does a great king do for his people? A great king provides for his people. In your hands when you came in, you got these elements of communion. And I just want to uh, give a reminder. This is, this is something sacred. There's two things that, that Jesus our king commanded that we do. There's many things, two things he commanded as ordinances. One of those is baptism. If Jesus the son of God wasn't too good to be baptized, how about you? If, if you've been born again and you're a true Christian and you've never been baptized, I hope it sort of weighs a little bit on your heart. Jesus commanded us to do it. If you're a Christian and you've never done it, what are you waiting for? You have a duty. The king commanded it. It's not too late. Easter, Easter Sunday, we're going to celebrate baptism. And if you're a Christian and you've never been baptized, what are you waiting for? It's going to be a terrific celebration. You should join us.
But the other thing that he told his disciples to do was to remember him. This doesn't mean remember what he did way back there, although that's part of it. It's to remember our king. Where is our king right now? Jesus Christ is seated on the throne above every throne, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Never forget it. And who's providing for you? Who's providing love for you? Who's providing righteousness for you? Who's providing power for you? Who's providing security and strength and stability? Jesus is seated on the throne and he's providing for us. Because that's what great kings do for their people. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and he lifted it up and he thanked his heavenly father for it. He thanked his heavenly father for the ability to provide for the needs of his people. Remember Jesus, um, after performing miracles and his disciples were worn out, they were astounded at him. Jesus, aren't you hungry? Aren't you tired? Jesus said, I have a kind of food that feeds me deep down. It's so satisfying. And that food is to obey the Father. I love to obey the Father. When I obey the Father, it's like having a great meal. Jesus took this bread and what he provides for us as his followers. None of us will ever be made right with God because we've obeyed the Father. We have not. Communion is not for the righteous. Communion is for the unrighteous and the hungry. There's only one way for you to be made right with God. And that is for Jesus to have obeyed all of his commands for you and to offer you his righteousness. And to receive righteousness is so filling and satisfying. If this is what you are spiritually living off of, is Jesus' righteousness given to you, then take and eat. said this cup is a new covenant in my blood Jesus doesn't break his word when he makes a covenant it doesn't change none of his words will return void none of his words fall to the ground empty these words sustain they're eternal this cup is a new covenant in my blood there is a new way that you and I can be made right with God there is a new way that we can have life and that is not by our own performance record. You and I can, if you're a Christian, you and I can lay our head on the pillow at the end of a day, no matter what has happened that day. And we can know that we're clean before God. We can know that we're acceptable to God. Not because of what we've done all that day. Because the penalty for our sin, all of them, past, present, future. The blood's already been shed. We can rest in peace. Jesus' blood covers, and it always will. If that's what's filling and fueling your life, is his cleanliness, then take all and drink. Pray with me. Lord, for these last few minutes, what I've what I've tried to do is hold up your beauty and your majesty and your glory. And I pray that you would honor your word, honor your own glory by strengthening and empowering us to keep it, to hold on to it, to walk out with it today. 
Lord, some of us are going through a time in life where it does... It doesn't feel like we're in your kingdom. It doesn't feel like this is part of your kingly plan for our lives. Strengthen us through your spirit. And Lord, I pray over these next weeks in this series, I do pray, would you, beautif- would you make our church more beautiful by working on the inside of us, astounding us anew with the glory and majesty and highness of the great king, the king of the angel armies, and the king of Christians, and the king of nature, and the king of black holes, and the solar systems, of the Milky Way, and forever and ever, fill us with a sense of your beauty, and then move in us so that we embrace, as a real honor, our sense of duty. May all of our lives, our mind, our hearts, our bodies, May everything that we're doing proclaim in a spiritual way. Oh, he's the king. He's my king. In his name I pray. Amen.